Well, if you guys want to turn to Ephesians 2, I'm going to read a passage of scripture from there today. Uh, we're going to be in verses 4 through 10. Alrighty, so it reads, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Thank you, Angelica. Good morning again. All right, that's two of you that are awake. We're on a roll. Both Arnold's, too. How about that? <laughs> if you guys would turn now to Mark chapter 3. It's where we're going to be studying this morning, continuing um, our march through this gospel that has been uh, so impactful for the teaching team here in this church. And every week, I have not... I have not gotten up to share with you guys from this gospel series without an incredible weight and um, just a real gravity to looking at the life of Jesus and longing so desperately for our lives to look like his, for our thoughts and our actions and the, and the things that come from those actions to look like Jesus himself. This morning we'll be picking up in Mark chapter 3 and verse 7 as Jesus leaves the synagogue from our prior study last week and uh, most likely in Capernaum and makes his way down to the Sea of Galilee, which is close by. And before we begin our study of this text, I want to remind us all that the events which have transpired thus far in the early days of Jesus' public ministry, despite his instruction to some, um, he healed in the silencing of demons um, and their declaration as to who he is. The fame of Jesus has spread to the point where moving around is very difficult. Uh, we saw that at the end of chapter 1, that Jesus uh, intentionally told the man that he healed, don't talk about this, but go show yourself to the priest. In other words, go back to uh, the synagogue and be reintroduced into worship. You're healed now. But the man instead went and told everyone who Jesus was. And Jesus had told him expressly not to. And because of that, Jesus couldn't enter a house in Peter's house. And chapter two, we see that it was discovered that Jesus there at Peter discovered gives us this implication that he had snuck in somehow because he couldn't enter a town openly. It says before that Jesus found a way to get into the house without people knowing, but they soon discovered where he was and word gets around and people pile into the house and some destroy the roof just to get their friend to Jesus. I'm glad that it hasn't gotten to that in my life or yours. Because it would really stink right about now with all that snow coming down. You guys, for a season, these crowds will continue to appear around Jesus. And it would be easy to attribute their presence to the success of Jesus' ministry. We might look at that and go, that's successful ministry. Look at all these people showing up. Look at the impact he's having on the region. We'll see that especially at the beginning of our text this morning. Jesus' teachings, his healings, his dispossession of possessed people, we can look at that and go, this is, this, this is what success looks like to have throngs of people coming out and following you and looking to you. But the world's view of success is very different than God's view, isn't it? The world's view of success would look at this and say, see, that is successful ministry. And there are times when Jesus is ministering to large crowds. There are times where he is surrounded by large groups of people. And there are times that he's meeting with a broken Pharisee in the middle of the night, one-on-one, -on -one, preaching to him a message of salvation when no one's around. We call that the Nick at Night chapter, John chapter 3, right? You guys, so God works through Jesus, not just in the macro, but in the micro as well. Yes, Jesus is ministering to these groups of people despite the fact that he had wanted to keep the ministry quiet. It has grown to this thing where he can hardly move around. He can, can't openly open city, enter cities. And he's still ministering. He is still being successful. 
But he's just as successful when he's ministering to his disciples in private. When he's doing the work of the ministry that's not seen, Jesus is just as successful at fulfilling the Father's commands when he's privately praying through the night, when he's off on his own. You see, we don't separate this lifestyle of of success based upon what we see and what we don't see very often. We, we look at this and say, if I'm being seen, if it's, if it's piling in, if it looks successful, then that's what it should be. But man, if it's one guy ministering to 10 people for 50 years, that's a problem. Do healthy churches grow? Yeah, they do. But growth isn't everything. Growth isn't everything. Obedience and faithfulness to God is obedience and faithfulness to what he's called us to do you see god works through jesus in both situations success is not always defined by tangible factors but rather by the obedience of a person to what god has called and commissioned them to do that is success i'll say that again it's not always defined by tangible factors although at times we'll see tangible factors we'll see tangible fruit however how much of the life of a seed happens beneath the surface How much of the work that God's doing to grow a plant happens under the soil? We need to remember that. Obedience to what God has called and commissioned us to do is success in God's eyes. Success is not what my flesh thinks it is. I have to remind myself of that daily. The success is not what my worldly man desires. And it still saturates my thoughts and saps my time when things don't go my way. I love results. You guys know this. I talk about it all the time. I love my my reminders list. I like my check boxes. And I've told you about my sickness that I have. That every now and then I'll make an easy to check box on my list just so I can check it. It's twisted. And some of you are like, oh, I do that too. And if you've never done that and you think we're crazy, we are. But that's the reality of who I am. Breathe. Check. Eat something. Double check. You know, we like that. It makes us feel good. We're we're accomplishing something. But that's not what true success is. You guys, Churchill once said this. I love this quote. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. You you know, if I put that quote up there, anyone who studies World War II at all is like a history buff, you'd be like, that's Churchill. That's absolutely Churchill. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. I appreciate that quote. There's a bit of encouragement to that because it causes us not to look at failure, but to just keep going, to keep pushing forward. However, if we're walking in obedience to Christ, then even failure is merely a worldly perspective. If I'm walking in obedience to who God's called me to be, even failing is not really failure in God's eyes, is it? As long as I'm being faithful to him. Another quote that's not in the notes for this morning is one of my favorites from John Quincy Adams. And he says, duty is ours, but results are God's. We show up. We do what he's called us to do and we leave the results in his hands. Boy, if we could, if we could grab hold of that, and live our lives that way, do you realize how much peace you would have? Do you realize how much rest you would find? I did everything that God asked me to do to my best ability. You're like, yeah, but the building's still on fire. I did the best I could. I did the best I could. The results are God's. I'm doing everything in my capacity to serve him. You know, maybe get out of the building. But I'm I'm just saying, like, if we're doing everything that we can, we have to entrust the results to God. What's fascinating about the life of Jesus, and especially the teachings of Jesus, is he speaks to our view of success in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. In verses 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That's not one of our favorite promises of Scripture, is it? You are blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. He continues, says, For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Now notice the because of me and then work your way backwards through the insulting, the persecution, and having things said about you that are wrong, that are false. Do you enjoy that? Is that something we look forward to? Ooh, 
Boy, I sure hope I get slandered today. That'd be awesome. I sure hope there's some persecution on my plate this morning. That's what I've been hoping for. You guys, you realize when it's for righteousness sake, when it's for the name of Jesus, we don't have to shy away from that because our peace, our rest is not found in being approved of by people anyway. Our peace and our rest is found in being approved of by God, by the Lord, what he's called us to do. Success rules differently in God's definition. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will be abandoned, absolutely 100% succeeding at what the Father told him to do. Would you say he was unsuccessful because there was no one with him in that moment? No, Jesus was right where the Father had him, doing exactly what he had him there to do. So it was not based at all on the viewable, tangible factors. He was just as successful in the garden as he is here in Mark 3, as he's succeeding at doing the Father's will amongst the crowds in spite of people not listening to him. Will be proclaimed by the people of the Decapolis in Mark 7.37 is true. They get, they're just astonished, extremely astonished. It's the only time extremely astonished is used on behalf of people in the gospel of Mark. They're extremely astonished, it says in Mark 7.37, and said, he has done everything well. That's a good word. That's a good word. Jesus did everything well. But the situation around him looked different from time to time, didn't it? I, I know how to say this, didn't it? English is tough. You guys, it's not based on what we're seeing. It's based on obedience. Success is defined by obedience to God's call and command. It's important for us to grab hold of that before we read our text this morning. You'll see why. Let's begin with the first section, which is Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Let's get into this. Mark 3, 7 through 12. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea. And a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. And then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed so many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Something fascinating, and it's not, it's not something I prepared to talk about, but just as we're reading this struck me. Isn't it interesting that God in human flesh had to make arrangements so that people didn't crush him? He had to make arrangements to have this boat ready for him so that the people wouldn't crush him as they were trying to get to him. Isn't it interesting that God made arrangements for the son to be crushed at the right time? That it was his plan and his destiny from the beginning to be crushed at the right moment for our sake. There seems to be, in this text, a distinction between these verses of large crowds and disciples. Notice it calls out the large crowds and where they're from. It talks about Jewish areas of Galilee and Jerusalem and Perea, east of the Jordan, along with Jewish Gentile regions that these crowds were coming from. Idumea, which was south of Judea, and the Negev. You would know that in the Old Testament as Edom. Largely Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. There was Jewish communities there, but it was dominated by Gentile folk. All north of Galilee, Tyre and Sidon, they began following Jesus. So Jesus is drawing crowds not just from the region of Galilee, but from all over the place. People are coming. The distinction of the crowds from the disciples in verse 9, I believe, makes it clear that just because people were following Jesus around didn't make them his disciples. Please note that distinction. Just because there was large crowds did not make them his disciples. The people groups are separated in the text. And I think oftentimes we confuse the term disciples in the Gospels, or at least I have in the past, as I've read it when I was younger, that when I read the term disciples, I would always think of the twelve. I saw the term disciples like, oh, it's talking about the twelve. No, there's a larger group of disciples, and as we'll see later on in our text this morning, the twelve are chosen from that group of disciples. So it's interesting that here identified in these verses, we see these large crowds of people 
and a group of his disciples. There's a difference between being a part of the crowd and being Jesus' disciple. There's a difference of showing up where Jesus is and being a follower of Jesus. Do we know the difference? Do we know the difference between those things? A disciple is not only someone who follows another person or their way of life, but they're also someone who submits themselves to the discipline or teaching of the leader or their way. In other words, a disciple of Jesus walked in obedience to what he said. They followed him, not as a crowd, but as a learner and as someone who seeks to obey what's being taught. Out of necessity, because of the amount of people who want to touch Jesus due to his healing of so many, Mark will tell the story in chapter 5 of a woman who only wanted to touch just the hem of his garment so that she could be healed. She believed if she could touch just a bit of his clothing, she would be healed from a horrible, horrible issue of blood that she had dealt with for many, many years. And when she touched him, she was healed. So people, you understand the idea of them pressing in upon him and wanting to get really close to him. They want to touch him. They want to be near him. So he has a boat that's ready for him to push off. And we see in the gospel accounts, Jesus teaching from a boat to the crowds. There's a reason for that. They were piling in on him. And if he wanted to speak to them, he couldn't. There were so many. Perhaps he also would want to use it for transportation. Well, he had no shortage of watermen with him from the 12. So they could navigate that pretty easily. Notice that again, we're told at the end of this section Here in verse 11, that the unclean spirits, the demons that would recognize him, would declare who he was, and he exercised complete authority over them by silencing them. So far in this gospel, we need to notice something. This is important. And that's that only the Father and the unclean spirits have fully understood Jesus' true identity. The only ones who have declared who he is accurately up to this point are the demons and the Father. Interesting thing to note about the gospel thus far. It's rattling that human beings, so blinded by unbelief, so blinded by who they are, their walk of life, whatever it is, the ones who were made in his image have not correctly identified him yet. Now we know that Peter's going to make his confession at Caesarea Philippi, We know that Peter's going to say, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. But at this point, at this point of Jesus' ministry, the only two that have declared as the Father and the demons. It made me think of Isaiah 53 too. I'll explain why in a minute. But it says this, speaking of the Messiah, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This is speaking of Jesus. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. People misunderstood who Jesus was then, and how much do people misunderstand who Jesus is now? How many people misunderstand who Jesus truly is? Is Jesus who you expect him to be? Is Jesus who you think he is? Do you view him through the lens of scripture or do we imagine him to be something different? For some of us, we might imagine Jesus to be very judgmental. Always down on us. You messed up again? I can't believe you. Sometimes that depends on our upbringing, doesn't it? Right? Sometimes our upbringing, we start seeing that through the eyes of what we heard as kids. You know, maybe we see Jesus as someone who just allows everything. Maybe that was your experience growing up, not mine. But you know, just lets you do whatever you want, loves you no matter what, never disciplines. For more on that, please see Proverbs and Hebrews 12. You guys, Luke's gospel records that prior to verse 13, something very important happens here. If you want to be like Jesus... If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to connect with his heart and know who he truly is, this is what's recorded in Luke 6, 12, right before we get to the next section. In the the Gospel of Mark, this is the same story being recounted, but Luke includes a detail that's very important. Luke 6, 12 says this, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, 
and spent all night in prayer to God. First thing we need to remember about Jesus, he was committed to prayer. He prayed all the time. And before he went about the business that the Father had for him to do, Jesus was found overnight praying. You guys, do you think that maybe that's why Jesus wasn't impressive to the world? How impressive is prayer to the world? How impressive or how desirous or how majestic is it to see someone on their knees in the dirt crying out to God? If you want to touch the heart of Christ, it's through prayer. If you want to know the will of the Father, it's through prayer. You guys, this is something that's so important for us to grasp that sometimes the thing that we want to do the least spiritually, the thing that we make the least time for, the thing that takes us the most effort to get to, that quiet, especially for you families, for you parents who are like, you have no idea how little quiet there is in my house. Oh, I do. I get it. <laughs> I understand. Do you really think that the Lord doesn't want you to spend time with him in prayer even though you're a father or a mother of a multitude? Or a few? Do you really think that it's less important for us to spend that committed time in prayer? I want to challenge you guys. We're challenging you guys to pray. Obviously, we have these prayer booklets that we want to pray over what's going on in Thailand, but let me encourage you with this as well. Let's be a people who just commit to giving the first, the best hours of our morning in prayer to the Lord. If this church will begin a movement of prayer where we get up early and we spend time with the Lord like Jesus did, or we spend, as we do rhythmically several times a year, an evening praying through the night as a church. Uh, you guys probably might have guessed this if you haven't come to one of those nights, but there's not this many people at an all-night prayer night. That's okay. But you are all welcome and all invited to practice what's happening in Jesus' life right here at this moment. Because what he's about to do, Jesus himself wants to be aligned with the Father's will. And he not only shows us how to do it, but Jesus himself was fully dependent on the Father's wisdom and leadership and the empowering of the Spirit in human flesh to make the decisions and to move forward in the way that God called him to. Remember what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself and became a human just like us. He teaches us our right dependence on prayer and on the Father. You guys, that's who Jesus really is. So when daylight comes, we pick up in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. We continue on. With all the people, all the things that have been going on, all the busyness of ministry, Mark summarized a lot of things in a, a few short verses. Now he moves forward, and in verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain. He summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12. To Simon, he gave the name Peter. To James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name, Bo I have to say this slowly, Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. You try. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus summoned those to him that he wanted calls the disciples, and then he selects 12 from that group of disciples. And what's amazing about this is when Jesus summons those whom he wanted, he set those men free from responsibility in a way. You're like, from responsibility? Oh, they were responsible in some ways still. Each them. He set them free responsibility of their calling. How? Because he, he chose them. They didn't come forward and put on a show and convince him. Jesus, empowered by prayer, chose them for the job. If there was any mistake to be made in picking them, who would that be the fault of? You could say it. It's not blasphemous. If there was any mistake, it was Jesus that made it. And you're like, oh, he didn't make a mistake. Calm down. You're like, get the rocks. No, calm down. You guys... If there was any mistake to be made, it was Jesus who made it because he chose them. 
Jesus doesn't make mistakes. If there were any defects in them, he would be the one to deal with them because he chose them. Has God called you? Has God chosen you? Church? Whose fault is that? You know, you may have decided to follow Jesus, but you love him because he loved you first. You may have chosen to walk with him, but you chose to walk with him because he chose you and called you. Church, he didn't make a mistake. He didn't make a mistake, and the defects that you see in your life, you're like, why would he choose me? He knew what was best. They're his responsibility. It's his job to iron out all of the problems. And let me tell you what, I got a whole lot of lumps. It's going to take a lot of ironing. But that's his job because he chose me. He chose you. You guys, there's so much peace and encouragement in that. God didn't make a mistake. He loves you. Think about what Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 15. This is the upper room discourse. This is the night he would be betrayed. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And this is the command, and this is so important to to read this at the end of this statement. This is the command he says I'm giving you, love one another. Jesus looks at the disciples and said, I picked you. You know, and what's crazy is, do you really think that that was hard for them to grasp looking at themselves? I think it was, but I think it was harder for them to grasp, not looking at self, but looking at each other. Think about how that affects how we view other people. You know, we look at ourselves and we're like, he chose me, I'm so loved. And I choose Buck over here as well. Buck? Are you kidding me? Look at this guy. He's a burden to everyone. He doesn't end. Jesus is like, I chose him, and my command to you is what? Love one another. That's why he said it at the end of that statement. Think about it. He's like, I chose you. And what were the guys arguing about that night? Who was greatest? Who's going to betray him? I'll bet it's, mm. <laughs> right? I bet it's John. Suck up. You're always leaning on Jesus. What do you think? Right? Think about this. You think about the people in the room. They were arguing that very night, and Jesus says, here's the thing. I chose every single one of you. Love each other. Church, are we doing a good job? Are we doing a good job of that? And don't think about all the people that are easy to love. Think about the ones you don't like here in this room. You're like, I love everyone in this room. Liar. (laughs) You guys, he called us to love one another. And he says, if I chose you, then you can't unchoose people. What powerful words of comfort for us and what a challenge for us. And what a comforting thing for the apostles during the rest of their lives when they faced their deaths in the end, they had not chosen this for themselves. What comforting words that Jesus told them there in the upper room before he went to the cross when he says, I chose you. Do you think they returned to that statement when they were going to their deaths? Jesus chose me i can do this i can do what he's called me to do it was a call to obedience and to receive his power we are hand crafted by god church please hear me every single person in this room was hand crafted by god in the womb he did not make a mistake when he made you He has given us skills and abilities. All of those skills and abilities, however, are in need of God's empowering, his appointing, and his direction. They are not enough on their own. And if we're trying to ride out the abilities that we have, we're going to fail. Outside of his power, we are sinful, we are fleshly, and we will use those skills and those abilities for ourselves. Outside of what he has called us to do and who he has called us to be, we will use those giftings for ourselves, for our own glory. But what God seeks to do through our salvation in Christ is to build his kingdom with materials such as this. God has chosen, church, to build his kingdom in Coeur d'Alene, in Post Falls, in, I mean, even Athol. He's done it all over. 
He's done it all over. He's using materials like this. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. R.H. Hutton wrote this. In a word, from beginning to the end of the Gospels, we have evidence which no one could have managed to forge that Christ deliberately chose materials of which it would have been impossible for anyone to build a great organization unless he could otherwise provide and continue to provide the power by which that organization was to stand. Ooh. Without him, this thing crumbles. For more on that, look at churches falling apart. Jesus has withdrawn the power. There's a form of godliness, but not the power. You guys, in order for Jesus to do this through these, these guys, in order for him to do this, he appoints them to three things. To be with him, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Let's break these down. I want you guys to no notice something before we get into these three things. The same root word used for appointed, the same root word is used in Ephesians 2, which we read earlier, verses 8 through 10. See if you can spot it. It'll be on the screen. I, I, I bold. I made it bold. I bold. I bold. Ha -ha. It's, it's on the screen. You can see it. You get what I mean. For you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his... Let's do it again. We are his created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That word appointed is the same root word as workmanship. What's more fascinating about this is this word is a beautiful word in Greek poetry. That root word that's used for appointed and workmanship, it's not like, well, the Lord sure threw me together. You know, like that's, that's not what it is. This is a word you would use to describe something that was crafted carefully. Something beautiful. Something useful. It actually emphasizes those two things, beauty and use. Hence the reason obedience is so essential to our lives. His appointment is enabling. His appointment is his workmanship. God didn't make a mistake when he made you. The parts of us that go wrong is where we do our own thing instead of submitting to his calling. Where we depart from the teaching of scripture and we do whatever we want. That's when our gifts and our skills and the workmanship that God has painstakingly put in on us gets misused. It's when I start doing my own thing instead of doing his thing. And what he appointed them, what they were to become his workmanship as, the first step was to be with him. In preparation for what he would send them out to do, they had to be men who had been with Jesus. Isn't that what was noted about them? Perhaps even in a deeper way than was recognized by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. If you guys remember this, Acts 4.13, Peter and John had been arrested. And it says this, when they, that would be the Sanhedrin, observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. Thanks, guys. They were amazed and recognized something. What was it? That they had been with Jesus. Jesus calls these disciples and he says, here's what you're going to do. Here's what the job of the 12 was to be. First, you're to be with me. What was noted about them after Jesus had ascended? and commissioned them and filled them with the Spirit to do the work of the ministry, to become the church, it was noted that they were men who had been with Jesus. It became visible. The disciples became men through whom Jesus could act unhindered. Think about that statement. Are we a people that God can act through unhindered? Am I hindering God with who I am? Am I hindering God with my agenda? Or is God able to act through me unhindered in this world? Oh, that all the disciples of Jesus would become members of his body, mastered by his intelligence, driven by his emotions, governed by his power and his intent. They were to be with him so they could become men who did this. They were also, after being with him, they were sent out to preach. 
a group of men so different from each other, different background, varying strength, argumentative, some quiet, some loud, some of them with this background, some with another background, some of them had a lot of problems with where this guy came from, and I don't like the neighborhood that you are, and I just don't like your face, right? These guys spent a lot of time together. And some, sometimes we just picture Jesus walking along the road, you know, and all the disciples like, yes, what, what, you know, that's not how it was. These guys are pushing each other, and shut up, I am so fed up with you, you're sleeping next to Peter tomorrow night. You know, it was that kind of stuff. These guys live life together. Picture your siblings. All of you are like, oh, that's horrifying. Welcome to the world of the disciples, right? It was that kind of life. It was real life. You know, some people talk about where they would go in a time machine. I would want to go hang out with the disciples and just watch. Watch them do life together, following Jesus for years on end. Be very entertaining. I probably want to watch from a distance, though. You guys, all of these men from all of these different walks of life sent out with one unified message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They went with the message of reconciliation just as Paul admonishes the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. It'll be on the screen. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That was the message they preached. The time for reconciliation has come. Jesus, after setting them apart, sends them forth, and you cannot have one without the other. Disciples of Jesus must be set apart before they're sent. And he gave them the third thing. He gave them authority. Now notice this. He gave them authority. He did not give them power. Please notice that. He gave them authority, not power. Why? Because power is always his. We have to be empowered by Jesus. He's the source of that. It's his power. We're given authority to call people to the name of Jesus because it is his power to save. It is his power to heal. It is his power to transform lives. The power belongs to Jesus, and we have to be careful to remember that and let no pride seep in. Let no preconceived notion, let no thoughts of how great we are seep in. We are not the answer to this world. We are not the answer to the darkness that's in this world. Jesus is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not Mike in me, the hope of, well, yikes. You guys, Christ in you, it's his power. That's why if Christ is not at the center, everything will fall apart. His power can free souls from bondage and save the lost from sin. We speak with authority so long as we speak in his name and his power will do his work in this world. And that's what we long for, isn't it? I tell you what, so often we're trying to conjure up a way to get the power of God moving. All right, let's, let's find a way. If you want the power of God to begin moving in this world, let's hit our knees. Be a people that pray. Be a people that confess and repent of their sin. The power of God will move through that because a broken person at the foot of the cross is what he is trying to bring us to. An absolute surrender to his will. And then he will work for his glory in this world through us. Here's the guys he picked for the job. And we'll close with this list of names and I'll work through them quickly. For the job, he appointed the twelve. To Simon, he gave the name Peter. To James, the son of Zebedee. To his brother John. I'm going to take another shot at it. He gave the name Boanerges. I did it. That is sons of thunder. I just, why don't we just say sons of thunder? Anyway, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. You guys, Jesus, let's kind of work our way through these guys really quickly. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. And that should always encourage us means stone or rock. 
for all the things that Peter was, Jesus did not name him something he could not be. Jesus did not give him a name that he could not bear for his glory. You guys, if Christ has called you, if he's chosen you, you can honor him with your life. He's given you everything you you need through his spirit. He does not call us to be something that we cannot be. He calls us to be everything that he made us to be. When Jesus calls us to himself and gives us a new identity in him, it will be by his power that he accomplishes what he desires in our lives. And to begin with that journey, we know what Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. That's why Bonhoeffer said, if any man would come after Christ, or when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. James and John were the next two, the sons of thunder. They were kind of misguided at times. They wanted to fry an entire city. And although they were misguided in their early years, with Jesus, their name becomes poetic and a poetic description of force and enthusiasm. These guys got fired up about things. We don't know as much about James as we do of John. Some believe he was the quieter of the two. And that's why we hear more about John than we do of James. Could be. However, in the end, it came to laying his life down. James did it. He was loyal to the end and laid his life down when Herod made the call to kill him. John, we know pretty well, wrote some of the letters that we read in the scriptures. They tried to boil him in oil, didn't take. And then he ended up being banished to the island of Patmos where he received the vision of Revelation. Andrew was Peter's brother. We met him in chapter 1. Philip was from Bethsaida, which was the hometown of Andrew and Peter. It's not where Peter was living because the center of commerce would have been Capernaum. He was the one who invited his friend Nathaniel to come meet Jesus. Bartholomew is most likely Nathaniel. Most would agree to that. And in John chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus remarks that there's no deceit in him. What a cool thing to have the Lord say about you. No deceit in this guy. Here's the thing. As we look at that, we're like, oh, he's not a liar. It's like, yeah, and he probably also speaks his mind a lot, which can be a problem. Matthew would be Levi. He was the tax collector. Probably not the easiest guy to have in the group. Thomas was a little skeptical. (laughs) James, the son of Alphaeus, we don't know anything about. One of the quieter followers of Jesus, Thaddeus, or as he's referred to in other gospels, Judas, not Iscariot. We hear him speak once in the upper room in John 14. Simon the Zealot represents the political radicalness. He was the one who would probably be the most problematic in many ways for them because the zealots were troublemakers. Troublesome political party that he followed before all went out the window when he chose to follow Jesus and Jesus called him. You guys, you couldn't ask for a more odd mixture of materials. Jesus is building a kingdom with the strangest materials ever. He's going to put this batch of ingredients into the oven and see what comes out. And by his power, it's going to be something beautiful. By his strength, it's going to be something beautiful. Is it beautiful at the onset? Is it perfectly harmonious? Are things going well? Or is Jesus going to take time and walk with these guys? Disciple them. Mentor and encourage and teach and instruct them. I am a full believer that Jesus himself practiced long-term relational discipleship. I think we should do the same. I think that training each other in the ways of the Lord, in obedience to Scripture, that we should be committing seasons of our lives, not a couple meetings, years, maybe decades to each other, to walk with each other, to grow and encourage one another. It's the way that Jesus did ministry. Jesus handpicked these guys himself. What about us? Are we rallying to the call of Jesus so that he can build us together into his church as one body? Are we holding on to who we've been? Are we holding on to something we have been and we're allowing that to create divisions amongst the church? Something that the disciples are going to have to work through. As we close, did you notice I left someone out? Some of you might have. Judas. 
appointed by Jesus. Called to be with Him. Sent by Him to preach. Given the offer of authority over demons. The presence of Judas should shake us to our core. And here's why. Because He was appointed by Christ to be with Him. He was sent by Him and never came into true association and submission to Him. He walked with the King of Kings in His human life. And not just rejected Him, but rejected Him so much that He opened Himself to be possessed by Satan Himself. There's a portion of the Gospels where Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. You ever sifted wheat before? A little sifter. My mom used to make me do it. That's how my hands got strong for guitar playing. What comes out the bottom? Yeah, it's like a powder. It's flour, basically. It's powder. It's all ground up. It's not what went into the top of the sifter. It's what comes out of it. And Jesus said, but it's okay, Peter. I've prayed for you. Judas so rejected Jesus, even though he was physically in his presence, that he allowed himself to be possessed. He betrayed the Lord of light, the King of glory, to his death. That's what disobedience looks like. Is it because he didn't know who Jesus was? Is it because he didn't see all that Jesus did? So many people think that if they would just be able to see him work a miracle, that they would magically believe. Well, it didn't work that way for Judas, did it? Judas had seen everything Jesus had done. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. He was there at the healing of the leper. He was there when all these things were happening, and it didn't change him. Because within him was an evil, unbelieving heart. And every single one of us should examine ourselves and say, Lord, let there be no part of my life, no part of my heart that I closet or hide any sin or deception from you, any disobedience from you. Because if you know anything about sin, you need to know this, it's a cancer. Sin grows. It spreads, it permeates, and it destroys And if we are not real about the sin in our lives and convicted and willing to confess and repent, that scares me. I don't want to be a tool of the enemy. I want to be a son of God. Church, take these things seriously. Take these things seriously. Because here's the thing. He knows who belongs belongs to him may he find in us obedient willing hearts may he find in us not perfect people i took all that time to describe the disciples for a reason they weren't perfect they had plenty of problems but something was very wrong inside of judas something that all the evidence in the world did not convince him otherwise of Nothing that you hold on to in this world is worth giving up Christ. He is more valuable, more precious than anything. What is it that we're holding on to that's driving us from him, that seeks to have our allegiance? Let's take a lesson from this and remember we are saved by grace through faith. We don't see him right now. Now we see through a mirror dimly as we experience the scriptures as we pray, but then we'll see him face to face. We will stand before the King of Kings. My aim is that every single one of us, by the power of the Spirit, through his saving grace, will hear the words, well done. Because of his sacrifice and because of his perfect cleansing blood. Jesus, so many of us assume things. And Lord, I don't want to be someone who assumes for one moment that every person in this room knows you. 
It's been said, and I tend to agree with it, Lord, and, and I don't know this with 100%, but of all the disciples, would Judas have been suspected until he betrayed you? His brothers there in the upper room, they didn't have any suspicion. They didn't think it was him. Lord, is there any of us here this morning that have been holding out and, and we've, been, we've been walking around with you? We've been following you? You've called out and you've, you've, you've chosen? Given this offer and, and, and there's been something that looks like obedience and submission, but it's not in the core. There's something wrong in the heart. Lord, this scares me. It shakes me. It causes me to come to you and say, Jesus, if there is anything in my life, anything that is not of you, would you purge it from me? As the psalmist wrote, would you search my heart and know me, try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me? And would you lead me in the way everlasting? Because the presence of Judas in this picture scares me. You are to be worshipped, and you alone. And for whatever reason you've brought people here this morning, every single person in this room is loved by you. Every single person watching online is loved by you. Every single person that will watch this message or listen to it someday down the road is loved by you. Lord, we do not have the power, but we are your workmanship. And we ask that your power would be at work in us to strengthen us and to give us the ability, I ask in this moment, to recognize our sin, to recognize things that are separating us. And as we take a moment before we sing this song, Lord, my desire is that we would sing this song authentically. As we'll sing words that we've come to worship you, as we cry out that you would be enthroned, as we declare you the Lord of all things, Lord, I pray that this would not be pretentious. I ask that this would be the sincere truth flowing from cleansed hearts. No, we are not all together. We are scattered materials that you have brought into this place. And by your power, we can be the church. If there is any heart here this morning, Lord, that has looked the part, but has not given their heart to you, this invitation is for them. This moment is for that heart. Holy Spirit, stir them. Call to them. Lord, I pray that there would be a breaking of that unbelief, of that hesitation. The message goes forth this morning from the power of your Spirit. Be reconciled to God.